0: The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and let's begin with some Stephen Sondheim. This is actually, for those of you who care about such things, my very favorite musical. This is A Little Night Music, and this is a song called Now. Now it is a middle-aged man who has married a much younger woman and certain things haven't happened yet and he's feeling kind of self-conscious about it this is my favorite part of the song on top of my head like a siren hey i could put on my nightshirt or sit disarmingly be in the nude oh frederick you should have seen that might the great be arrival of... my body's all right but not in perspective and not in the light how calm, I'm bound to be chilly and feel a buffoon, but nightshirts are silly in mid afternoon. Why are virtuous people so stiff? Which leaves the suggestive, but how to proceed? Although she gets restive, perhaps I could read. He gave the coach, the in view of her t- penchant t- for something romantic, dishonest too trenchant and dickens too frantic, and stand all but ruin the plan of attack, as there isn't much blue in the red and the black. De Maupassant's candor would cause her dismay. The is a grander, but not very gay. Her taste is much blander, I'm sorry to say. But his Hans Christian Andersen ever escaped, which eliminates a... And he said, you're such a pretty lady. Wasn't that sick? It's those words. <laughs> I love what Stephen Sondheim does with words. If you're a word lover, and you probably are, if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably labor under the impression that we all labor under to an extent, which is that speaking your language is a matter of just stringing words together. That there are certain concepts, you learn what the label for the concept is, dog, yesterday, already, you know, popsicle, whatever. And that that's what language is. That's what it feels like. But the joy of language is that there's so much more. That's what I try to get across in this podcast, that language is actually more interesting than we even might think it is. And one way that it is is that part of speaking a language is not only knowing that the thing that barks and is cute is a dog, and that when you talk about something that happened before, you might refer to it as happening already. There's more than that. You also have to know how to speak the language differently in certain situations. So there's the vanilla form, and then there are things that you do. And you learn this sort of thing subconsciously. Nobody teaches this in grammar lessons or the like, but it's part of actually being a person in a language. So, of course... An example of this would be Married with Children, the silly sitcom that there were about 875 episodes of. And yes, I have seen every one of them. It was actually a very witty show in its stupidity. I highly recommend it. It was a word feast. And one episode that I always liked was called God's Shoes. And in this episode, Al Bundy has had a dream where there's something connected with shoes and religion. I forget exactly how the plot went, but the idea was that he starts walking around in godly garb and talking in a kind of, you know, Cecil B. DeMille biblical register, as we call it. And so, at this point, he is in this outfit and walking around talking this way, and he's cooking up a scheme, as he often was, to make money, and his neighbor Jefferson is trying to get in on the deal. Listen to how Al is talking. I shall go forth unto the people to reveal God's shoes, and multiply upon them. (laughs) Let me come with you, Al, and learn... How much we're we gonna charge per pair? I will hear nothing of price. That's your job. You're the marketing guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I will hear nothing of price instead of don't talk to me about how much things are gonna cost. I will hear nothing of price. You know, even this anti-educated Al Bundy knows that if he's being this biblical character, he has to talk in a certain way. You learn that subconsciously, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not. That's what a linguist calls register. Another example is this. Here is actually my favorite old movie, except for Citizen Kane and about 10 others. My favorite old Old movie. I'm sitting here recording this in my study. I have not one, but two posters of Dinner at Eight. This is a movie of 1933. Some people say 32. I don't know why, but it's a delightful movie. It's kind of an extended episode <laughs> of The Love Boat. And this is Jean Harlow as Kitty Packard trying to wheedle something out of her husband, played by Wallace Beery, and listen to the way she talks to her Dan. Danny! Kitty wants to go see all the great big lords and ladies in a big booful house. Danny! It's for Lord and Lady Ferncliff. Who said so? She did. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? Because you were mean to poor little kitty. And remember, she's doing this before Elmer Fudd exists. She's not imitating a cartoon character. This is something that people were doing in 1933 and eons before. There's this baby talk register that a person can go into. You just learn this, nobody teaches it to you. But what it means is that talking is more than just the vanilla. You also learn that there are these other ways of talking that you go into. It's part of knowing a language. And even just reducing this not to how you put words together, but just the words themselves, languages vary in how they handle that kind of thing in really interesting ways. It's easy to think that English's way is the only way a language would do it, but no. There are all sorts of ways that languages get more complicated than there just being some label for a thing or a concept. There are many labels, and you have to know when to use them. You have to know in which context to use them. And so... Let's look at some examples of how these things go. Let's look at examples that will seem exotic to us, because that's part of the joy of living, to see things that are very different from what you would expect. So, we're in Northeast India. There are languages in Northeast India that no one's ever heard of. They're so obscure that even the people who speak them haven't heard of them. They are very obscure. I'm kidding about that. But one little group of languages like that is called the Mishmi languages, very obscure languages spoken by very small groups not known to outsiders very well. Mishmi. And the Mishmi languages are interesting in all sorts of ways, but one of them is that the idea that there's just a word for something wouldn't make sense to them because there are lots of words for things, depending on what context you're in. They're actually, depending on how you count it in these languages, eight Different registers, you might call them. And anybody who speaks these languages unconsciously knows all of these different ways of talking. And it's not just a matter of occasionally using baby talk because you're in an old movie and you're trying to get something out of your jackass husband. It's not that you are going to dress as something for Halloween and walk around talking like Charlton Heston in Ben Hur or something like that. This is something where you, every day, you're switching between these things. There's the vanilla of course. But if you know the vanilla, you aren't a person in the Mishmi languages. You also have to know a whole set of different words that are used when you're hunting. And it's not just two or three. There's a whole hunting language. Shamans have a whole different language, and everybody knows it. Not just the shaman, but everybody knows this shaman register. They have the poetic register, of course, where words are different. There are different words and different expressions that you use when you're mediating when people are having an argument. Then, of course, there are curse words, which are different from regular words. Then there are humor words, words that you only use when you're being funny. You know how... In English, you know, potato is kind of a funny word, just kind of is, there's nothing funny about the potato itself, but potato is kind of like, hee hee, that's just the way it is. I was told by a Russian person once that the word for coat is funny, Paito. for some reason that's funny. You know, to us, coat's not funny, but to them, coats are apparently funny. Well, in Mishmi languages, That's all formalized more. There are the funny words that you use when you're not being vanilla, but you're making jokes. And then, of course, they have their baby talk words, which are not just a matter of pronouncing words differently like Elmer Fudd and Gene Harlow, but just completely different words. It's really astounding. And it's so easy to think, well, it's these primitive languages because the people don't have psychotherapy or something like that. No, the fact is that generally the less quote unquote advanced people are in terms of quote unquote civilization, the more complicated their language is. And there are all sorts of ways that a language can be complicated. With the Mishmi, this is their thing. For example, one of their languages is called Kman. And in Kman, the word for bear ordinarily is kum, that's bear. But if you're hunting, there's a different word for bear, and it's humwartong. So, normal word for bear, coom. Hunting word for bear, when you're off hunting and you're talking about catching that thing, it's a humwartong. And humwartong is not a name. That doesn't mean like Mr. Bear or something like that. It doesn't mean something like, oh, great bear creature. No, it's that the word for bear when you're hunting is humwartong instead of coom, and you just have to know. If you're a mishmi, then you know this. Cursing. You have different words. And so, for example, the way they say go to hell is go to a ghost village. And the order of the words is ghost village there. Go you. So, the way they say it, and I have never heard this language. I doubt if I ever will. And so, if any of you happen to be C'mon speakers, I'm sorry. I'm butchering the language, but I'm trying. And so, go to hell is C'mon glat he pilchilong. So, C'mon glat is ghost village. And then he is there. So, C'mon glat he. And then... Pilchilong. chilong is go you. Now, what's interesting is that the chilong is something that you only say when you're cursing. The go you, those are not the vanilla words for go or you. So it's almost like there's you in English, and then there's something like, you know, your ass, like take your ass to the stop and shop or something like that. That's kind of what this chilong would be. And, you know, the cursing word for go. Would be something like haul your ass or something like that. You only use it when you're cursing. And so, oh you go to hell, come on, Gla Chilong, the cursing versions, then poetic. And so you might think, well, a quote-unquote civilized language has higher layers, whereas then they're just these little dialect. No, no, not at all. Even languages that aren't written, and the vast majority are not written in any real way, there's a high version and a low version. So, brother, ordinarily, is chop me, Chop, not chopped meat, chop me. That's brother. But then, the poetic word for brother, kind of, you know, brethren, except if there were a singular version of brethren, that is plum. Cheap plum. So brother, chop me. But then if you're gonna say kind of oh brother, <laughs> then that's cheaplum. Isn't that interesting? Or like sleep. We can say sleep, then there's slumber. You know, you learn slumber later and you almost never use it except maybe in a certain irony. It's it's the poetic word for sleep. If you were gonna write a bad poem, then you would have somebody slumbering instead of sleeping. Well, in on the word for sleep as in is just Nghi. Okay. Of course, this language also has tones. You know, in, in addition to everything else. So sleep. Nghi. But then, if you're slumbering, then it's shishink, shishink. And notice that shishink isn't a version of nghi. It's not the difference between something like Danny and Danny. It's a completely different word, like sleep and slumber. Except shishink is even more different from than slumber is from sleep. So that's how labeling works in Kaman. Depending on context, you have completely different vocabularies, and they're large vocabularies, and you just have to know. And this is something that makes you think about language loss. When a language like this dies... Then, what you're losing is not just a bunch of labels for things like dog, cat, already, and yesterday. You're losing all of these different sets of vocabulary depending on context. And when the language is dying, one sign of it is that young people will only know the vanilla words. Think about all that's lost when a language goes away. So, it's just something to think about. In any case, it's time for one of our musical breaks. And you know what I'm going to play? I'm going to do the Nicholas Brothers. You ever seen the musical Stormy Weather, the film musical Stormy Weather, where at one part near the end, the Nicholas Brothers tap dancers come out and do what is certainly the most amazing tap dance on film? Even if you don't like musicals, you should go online and take a look at the Nicholas Brothers doing their number in Stormy Weather. But that isn't the only thing they did. And the wonders of the internet are such that you can actually watch them when they were little boys doing their thing. And it's 1936, and they're singing a song called Lucky Number. And they were just so cute, and the song is so catchy. This is the Nicholas Brothers, much younger than they were in Stormy Weather, doing Lucky Number. Lucky Number, oh, I'm dreaming of Lucky Number, hoping that those lucky numbers yeah. will show for me. Numbers gonna show for you. Superstitious, oh, it even makes me suspicious. A table with thirteen dishes, it will is make made, me. May you please, heaven's feet Hey, that's mommy. Yeah, yeah, man, Well, open right, it. Put my trust in good for dust. Cause you know someday it may bring you a seven. Or oh, maybe a lucky eleven. Well, that's you'll be in heaven. A number for me. Yeah. Mike, actually. Playback when Fayard, the older one, says, table with 13 dishes. Table with 13 dishes. You hear that? 13 dishes? It's that... Oi, that black oi from the old days. And the Nicholas Brothers grew up in Philadelphia. That is something that you hear. And also, the orchestra. Uh, listening to just the dance music, orchestration, arrangement of pop music really reached a special peak in the 1930s. Not 40s, not the Benny Goodman swing stuff. That had its charms. But a pop orchestra in the 1930s is one of my favorite sounds in the world, just the way they put the instruments together. So, Let's look at another language that throws us in terms of what we think of as normal. Javanese, not Japanese, but Javanese. This is the island of Java in Indonesia. And Javanese is an interesting language in that what word you use for things depends not on whether you're hunting or whether you're using baby talk, but on what level socially you are on. And so... There is almost a different language that you use if you're a person high on the social scale as opposed to a person who is ordinary on the social scale. And then there are also variations in the middle. So there are a lot of Javanese to the point that speakers practically think of the levels as different languages. And so, for example, you are, you know, you're thirteen. And you're talking to your 14 year old sibling. This is just very vanilla. If you're gonna say something like, I have eaten the rice, you're just gonna say it, then it's Aku Wis Mangan Sokule. So Aku is I, Wis Mangan have eaten, and then Sokule, the rice. That's how you say I've eaten the rice. If you were gonna do Duolingo Javanese, I don't know if they have it, but if they do, that's how you would learn to say I have eaten the rice. Okay. But if you are the king of Java, or if you are a lowly person speaking to the king of Java, I don't know how their political system works, but you're a lowly person speaking to Mr. High Java, you don't say Aku. You say Kula. And Kula is not a version of Aku. It's a completely different word for I. You are the same I, but if you're talking to the king, or if you're the king just talking, you don't say Aku. You say Kula. And then Wismangan, that's have eaten the rice. Wis is sampun if you're using the high version. Mangan, eaten, and that sounds like eating to us because of French's manger. Mangan? No, that really is not something that you say if you're a high person or if you're talking to a high person. The high person does not munch, the high person dines. And so you have to say nuda, nuda, not mangan. <coughs> nuda, you know, with your kind of pinky. Up And then rice, if you're just, you know, just talking, then it's sakule. But if you are speaking, then rice is sakulipun. And you can see the relationship between the words. Sakule is clearly what happens to sakulipun when you say it an awful lot. But sakulipun is the word for rice if you're talking high. So there is the ordinary, lowly kind of saltine cracker, whatever, ngoko, that's what it's called. Then there's the krama. The krama is the high. And then, even in between, and so, for example, if there's a servant who is talking to one of the children of the people she works for, the people you work for, you're supposed to speak krama. If you're talking to the 13-year-old, then there's a middle version. It's called madhya. And so, instead of kula sampun nadasa kulipun, you say kula, but instead of sampun, well, there's a kind of a shorter sampun, pun. Now it's weis in ordinary, sampun in high. If you're in the middle, well, you do bun. And then you're gonna have your nuda, You don't say mangan, even to the fourteen year old who you work for. And then sakulipun. You don't have to say that. You say sukule. So, you have these three layers. There's the ngoko, the madya, and the krama. And then, of course, as you might guess in real life, there's some layers even in between. They're really five. But to make it more graceful, you can imagine it as three. So, it's one of those things. With the Mishmi languages, the thing that makes them hard is that you have these eight different registers, these eight different sets of vocabulary. With Javanese, what makes it hard is that, that you have these different levels depending on formality, and you have to do it. Javanese is one of those languages where, at first, it seems almost strangely easy. I've mentioned on this show that Indonesian is like that too. You don't have a whole lot of endings. You don't have to deal with conjugation. You don't have to deal with things having meaningless gender, nor is there tone. So with Indonesian, it really does never smack you in the face. It's a very user-friendly language for various reasons, mainly because it's been used as a lingua franca for so long that adults have often learned it, and adults don't learn language as well, and so it makes the language easier. Javanese is a lot like that at first. And so you think to yourself, well, this is another one of these languages that adults have made easier. But no, Javanese is hard in that there are many Javaneses. And native speakers of Javanese are very much aware of this. I have lost count of how many Javanese people have said to me, oh yeah, I, I speak Javanese, but I don't speak the Krama. <laughs> don't, I don't know that high one. That's becoming common in modern society. And there are people who grow up with Javanese, but they prefer Indonesian because you don't have to learn all of these layers. Javanese is tough, and it's because of this hierarchy that it has. So, With Javanese, it's not just that there's a word for eat. You have to know various words for eat, depending on who's talking and who you're talking to. Languages are interesting in that way. We've got kids, children. We've got munch, dine. We've got some of it, but all of that is much more formalized in Javanese. You could hear more of this than anybody else will if you sign up for something called Slate Plus. Slight plus would mean that you would get more information for a nominal fee. And also, you wouldn't have to listen to any ads. It wouldn't be broken up by somebody else saying stuff, especially during COVID. It tends not to be me doing the ad. All of a sudden, there's this other person. And whatever interesting thing they happen to be saying, still, it breaks up the show. Or sometimes, all of a sudden, it's me talking about some mattress or something. You don't have to have that if you get Slate Plus. And if you get Slate Plus, it's not just about Lexicon Valley. You don't have to listen to ads with any of the Slate podcasts that you listen to. And you always get the tag. All of us do a little tag just for people who paid a nominal fee and got Slate Plus, which frankly, during these circumstances helps us out a lot because COVID has affected all media organs in negative ways. And so Slate.com slash Lexicon Plus is where you go to get Slate and hear a little bit more of this every time I do a show. For example, this time, if you want to hear about how the sound N gets a bad rap all the time, see what a random topic that is, well, you're not going to know the story unless you sign up for Slate Plus, and I'm almost sure that you will be glad that you did. Now, another way that language can be about more than just what the label is for something. In many languages of Southern Africa, They're different labels, not based only on hierarchy, but on taboo. They're words that you absolutely cannot use in the presence of certain people. And more to the point, it's not that there's only a set of other words that a person might use, but to a large extent, you are expected to make up your own. That is another way of being a language. I'm talking about Hlonipa. Hlonipa is a tradition In certain languages of southern Africa, the ones that we hear about the most are Xhosa and Zulu, but there's some others. And in those languages, it's the most interesting thing. If a woman marries into a family, then there is a rule, there's a custom that she cannot use the names of her male new relatives and not of her mother-in-law. And that might seem trivial, but it means that you have to change the way you talk. Because not only can you not say the names, you can't use words that have those names or parts of those names in them. So, this is as if there's somebody named um, William Green and his parents are named Robert and Grace. And William Green marries a woman. The woman now can't say William or Green or Robert or Grace, or any words that have parts of those names in them. Let's say that the woman wants to say that William's mother, Grace, won't eat green yogurt. Grace will not eat green yogurt. That's what the woman who's just married William wants to say. Grace will not eat green yogurt. Can't say that because you can't say Grace's name. You can't say Will because that's William's name. Your husband is one of your male relatives at this point. And you can't say green because that's the last name that you're marrying into. And you can't say yogurt because Ert is in Robert's name. So you can't say Grace will not eat green yogurt. So the way that you have to say that is something like the older daughter of Smith. If, you know, Grace's maiden name was Smith. The older daughter of Smith not will not, but refuses to, and then eat, you can't say green, so you'll say grass-colored, and then maybe for yogurt, you'll say yo-mix or something like that. So not Grace will not eat green yogurt, you can't say that. It's a real taboo, you don't do that. Graceless, rude, there are rituals that you have to go through to apologize. Grace will not eat green yogurt has to be the older daughter of Smith refuses to eat grass-colored mix. That's the Hlonipa. Some of these Hlonipa words are set. You just learn them being part of the culture. So, for example, with wagon, the word for wagon in Xhosa is ibekile. If there's somebody named Kile or something like that, well, then you have to say idyekile. Ubisi, milk. Well, if somebody is named ubi or something like that, you can't say ubisi. So you say uhlaza. And the reason you say uhlaza is because that root means fresh. And so you're saying kind of the fresh stuff. And everybody knows that you mean milk. Or talk about potatoes. If you say itapile in chosa. If you can't say that and you're observing lonipa, then you say uzambane. Uzambane is the Zulu word for potato. Jose and Zulu are about like Spanish and Portuguese. They're related and they're very similar. Different languages, but very similar. And so you might use a Zulu word instead. Or, and this is the really cool thing, often lonipa words are ones that have clicks in them, because these Southern African languages are spoken close to, and there's lots of interaction with speakers of, in the past, the click languages, where the clicks are ordinary sounds. So, these languages are not click languages of that original kind themselves, but one way that you make a Hlonipa word is to make a click version of the word, and this is something that almost certainly arose because there used to be many marriages of click language speaking women with men speaking these other Southern African languages, and so one way that they would observe Hlonipa would be to come up with a version of the word that has one of these clicks in it. It would have been natural. After a while, people speaking these Southern African languages picked up. Up the clicks. You never know how a language is going to work. So, for example, graze, "jaba." Well, if "jaba" is also the name of your mother-in-law or something like that, then the way that you make it a Hlonipa word is "haba," "haba." All sorts of ways that you have to distort language, partly based on a set of words everybody knows, partly based on your own creativity, and of course, there's some bleed between the two. And the idea is that no, there isn't just a word. There are other words that you use, depending on whether they happen to sound like the names of your in-laws, and especially your mother-in-law. And to an extent, you just have to make it up. So, you know, what's the word for milk? Ubisi, okay, but the word for milk is also ulaza, and you just have to know. That is a way that a language can be. Here's a quick song, by the way. This is On the 20th Century, a wonderful, wonderful musical. This is Cy Coleman's music. This is Betty Comden and Adolph Green's lyrics. This is 1978. This is a song called Repent, which is sung by a now very religious woman who was not in the past. And this rendition is by the marvelous early television comedian Imogene Coca. This song gives me a belly laugh every time I hear it, and I've probably heard this cut 200 times. This is Repent. It's funny, I first was played this in college. And even as late as when I was in college, I didn't know a thing about musical theater. And somebody played me on the 20th century. I did not get it, couldn't stand it, wondered why anybody would want to listen to such a thing. Now I will play this in the car. It's just delightful. This is part of Repent. And every time we're passing through Beneath a bush, inside the zoo I know there's dirty doings going on The devil tempts us every day. The backseat of a Chevrolet could be the place dirty doings going on. So heed the simple rule to save you from your doom. Do only what you do with mother in the room. Repent, repent, repent. In the fiery pits of Hades, it's too late for your laments. Repent, repent, repent. There's a fiery pit for ladies and a fiery pit for gents. Now's the time to choose, my friends. <laughs> the backseat of a Chevrolet. That's just perfect. So, what I just talked about with the hlonipa that's called avoidance language. And there are versions of it. Around the world. Another favorite version of mine is in various Australian languages, where you do use a separate vocabulary specifically with your mother in law. You're not supposed to look at her, and you have to use a whole different little language with her. This mother in law language is a common. Phenomenon, And so, for example, one of the languages spoken in Queensland, it's called Gugu Yimitir. And in Gugu Yimitir, Gugu's language in Yimitir means this, roughly. Gugu Yimitir, in that language, you do not use the usual words that you use for moving around with your mother-in-law. So in the regular language, there's going and walking and sailing and crawling and stumbling. All these words, just like any normal language needs. But when you're talking to your mother-in-law, there's just this one word that just generally means go. And that covers the going and the walking and the sailing and the crawling. Just going, moving. There's just this one word. If you use any of the regular words, that is a real insult to your mother-in-law. It will be like hauling off with a curse word. So Australian Aboriginal languages. It's interesting. When the English first got to Australia, they made all sorts of comments about these languages that the indigenous people were speaking. Very often, they thought of the languages as so primitive, when really, the languages were invariably, in many ways, much more complicated than anything in boring old English. Captain Cook gets to Australia, and actually, Gugu Yimitir was the first language that they encountered. And he's, you know writing his memoirs. It's totally different from that of the Islanders. It sounded more like English in its degree of harshness that could not be called harsh, neither. That's what Cook writes. What's well, the harsh? These are really, really sophisticated languages. In fact, one more thing about Google Tear is that it's actually more famous for being a language where you never say that something's in front of you or in back of you, you talk about whether it's North or south. If something in front of you is North then if you turn around, you don't say that it's behind you. There is no word for that. You say that it's north of you because it still is. And the people who speak Google Yumi Tier always know what direction things are. They live on flat land. They need that. And you, know, you can get them dizzy. You can get them anything. They're in the dark and they always know, well, it's west of me. You don't talk about left and right. Also, Google Yumi Tear is where we get kangaroo. You know, somebody you know asked, what is that big hopping thing? And somebody said kangaroo. And that is how we got the word kangaroo. It might seem like I'm getting more and more exotic. You've got the Mishmi. You've got Javanese. And then we look at Hlonipa and what goes on in Gugu Yimitir. So this stuff looks really weird. But you know, we're weird too. And not just in the sense of being Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Not weird in that, you know, there's a book, by the way. Oh, you've, you've got to read this book. There is a book by, his name is Henrich. Henrich. I forget his first name, but Henrich. And he's written a book about weirdness in that sense and how we Westerners with those traits are actually highly unusual. I Highly recommend this book. It's just one of the best books ever written. But in any case, yes, we are weird, but we're also weird in the kinds of ways that seem, if I may, so weird to us looking at languages from the outside. Think about this, which you heard before I started this show. Mike, could you please play the little warning that apparently my show has to have? The following podcast contains explicit language. The reason that they put that is because I apparently am known for being kind of profane on this show. I've pulled back on it over the past couple years because I realize that there are children listening and I have to stop saying some things. But frankly, why can't I say fuck? because it's profane. We know what fuck refers to, but no, I'm not allowed to say that. There's kind of a taboo on it. It's there. It's old. If I say it, nothing happens. I just said it twice, and I'm looking out the window, and the sky is not going to fall. And, you know, even you children, you heard me say it, and I think you're going to be fine. But I'm not allowed to say it. And, you know, it's getting to the point where modern Americans are less uptight about profanity than they used to be. For example, 50 years ago, I could not even play with saying fuck on the radio the way I do now. But we have taboos on other words. So, for example, here is a language teacher, and he is talking about Chinese, something about Chinese, in an online discussion. Here he is. If you have a lot of armor um and this is culturally specific, so based on your native language, like in China, the, the common word is that, 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 that. So in China, it might be nega, 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 nega. So there's different words that you'll hear in different countries, but they vocal dysphalian. So it's saying that, 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 er, er, er. Now, what he's referring to is that Mandarin, like many languages, has a way of saying like in the hedging way that we are so familiar with. So to say like, 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 or that, whatchamacallit, that, um, that, um, the way you say that in Mandarin is their word for that, 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 and the that is nega, nega, naga, or another way of saying it is nega, nega. In many parts of Queens, where I live, you can hear people saying that on the street all the time. And there have been jokes that people have made about how that sounds like a certain other word. It sounds like Chinese people are saying it. But of course, we know that they're not what reason would they have to use that particular word to talk about that particular subject so very, very much. Even if you don't know Chinese, you can listen to that word being said and kind of guess that it must be their word for like, like, like. But you know... This gentleman who used that word in passing, talking about a usage in Chinese, is now on suspension from his job. And that's because many people think of that word as not only a slur that should not be used, that's one thing, but also as a sequence of sounds that should not be uttered regardless of meaning, even in Mandarin Chinese. Talk about Javanese and Lonipa and mother-in-law language. Well, to be honest, an outsider would see our verdict on that particular word as equally exotic. So, it just goes to show that we are not always aware of how complex our language is, and we're not always aware of how exotic our language is from outside perspectives. With that, I want to give you one more bit of my favorite arranging style. This is something that I first heard in 1987, and I am not a crier, but by the end of this number, just listening to the orchestra play this song over and over, I actually... (laughs) up. And I know I'm not the only person who loves this title song to the musical of 1936, On Your Toes. This is a recording from the 80s reconstructing exactly how this number was done in 1936, where they built up the arrangement bit by bit by having the instruments come in, then they did the song, and then everybody danced to the song, and the orchestral arrangement goes through chorus after chorus of this very catchy tune with variations each time. It's a marvelous six and a half minutes. You don't have to hear all six and a half minutes, but here is how it begins. This is Laura Teeter as the male lead, and listen to the orchestra building up into that glorious 30s pit band sound. First we'll hear the two pianos. Then we'll sneak in a solo trumpet and add the traps softly. Now the fiddles will have a counter melody. Gradually, the woodwinds Oh man The song You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Grind up some Sichuan pepper, by the way. It's not really pepper, it's just a uh, spice. And yes, I'm thinking of this because of the, the Mandarin Chinese thing, but this is important. Grind up some Sichuan pepper in your spice grinder, and then saute some shrimp with it. And you will have a good time, and you should wash it down, with watermelon-flavored bubbly. I found it, and damn, it's good. It is certainly the best of the 18 flavors. I now have all of the cans lined up on the mantelpiece. In any case, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter.